Hello and welcome to our podcast channel, What Matters? Conversations Exploring Psychosynthesis in the World. This is Susan Jukes-Allen, founder of Synthesis Center San Francisco. Join us, along with our hosts, Craig Behenna and Christina Gustafson, in conversation with psychosynthesis practitioners in the fields of coaching, health and healing, business, spirituality, education, and the arts. Conversations to inform, inspire, and ignite your call of self. In this episode of What Matters Conversations, our host, Craig Behenna, interviews guest Alan Harris. Alan is a clinical social worker, psychotherapist, psychosynthesis coach, 800-hour Dharma yoga teacher, and an Ignatian-trained spiritual director. He is also a contributing author in the book, Call of Self, Psychosynthesis Life Coaching, This interview begins with Alan describing to Craig his entry into psychology and spirituality. I I was looking over your website and the other other bits and pieces about you that I found on the net, and I thought it would actually be really useful to, to talk about your background and how you got to this point, because you've done lots of really interesting work and lots of really interesting study and integrated a lot of stuff about psychosynthesis and yoga. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered, what was your, your motivation to start in, start your study of things beyond what we might call the regular self? Was there a particular point in your early life where that really kicked in? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I I had a, an excellent psychology teacher when I was a senior in high school who turned me on to people like Joseph Campbell and Eric Fromm and Leo Pascalia and Jung and wow. Carl Rogers and Maslow and uh, yeah, Mr. Roth at Eisenhower High School. And he, he really opened the door for me. Um, so... I was, I think, 17 years old, and I was a cross-country runner at that time. And I think kind of my my life goal at that time was I wanted to be basically a blend between my cross-country coach and my psychology teacher after that. But there was, there was one thing that he did for me. Um, I think after I graduated, I asked him, because I knew he was steeped in a lot of knowledge that I wanted to know about. I said, if there was one book that you, you would recommend, what, what would it be? And, um, he recommended Ken Wilber's no boundary. And, you know, so I think that summer I read no boundary, which is, was probably the first time I heard the name or read the name Roberto Asagioli. And, you know, that particular book, it's not the end of Wilbur, Wilbur's sort of model, but, you know, at that time, reading his work, it sort of gave me the sense that I think Wilbur says everybody's right, right? So the, all of the, all the different psychological theories, all the different spiritualities, everyone's right, but everyone's sort of right from their own point of their own sort of line of development. So rather than looking at a kind of 
I don't know, more like a polarizing way of different traditions, he sort of had this synthetic approach and that really appealed to me. Um, what was it about that that appealed to you? Because particularly at, at such a young age, um, that's that's a, a pretty big thing to land on you. What was it that really struck a chord with you at that point? You know, I think this was true even younger, like when I was 14, going through my sort of confirmation experience as uh, at my Lutheran church at the time was I just had a lot of questions and I felt like the answers that I was given were, they were fine, but I just felt like the map that I was given was, it was a bit too small for the things I was interested in. And so when I discovered Wilbur, um, and then later when I discovered Ramdas, I was like, oh, this is it. Like, this is what I've been looking for. Something that was sort of more comprehensive and all inclusive, but distinct at the same time. And so how does that work with, because then you went on to do, um, you went on to pursue religious studies, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, how did that, how did those two sit together? How did you integrate those things? And what kind of things were you, because you, you said just before you were, you're, it sounds like your background was uh, Lutheran in terms of your, the religion that you were, were brought up in. How did, how did you bring all of those together within you? How did that all work? Well, that sort of happened much later. Um, I th- when I went to college, you know, I again, I read Wilbur and I was sort of looking to, I don't know, build on that kind of knowledge to build on what I had been exposed to in, in high school. And so I ended up getting, I double majored in psychology and religious studies. And I took a class called Myth, Self, and Religion. And... Mm-hmm my friend who was taking the same class in a different section said, you've got to meet this guy named Dr. Grimes, who John Grimes was a PhD in Indian philosophy. And so I ended up going to Dr. Grimes's class. I was basically auditing his class and the section that I had simultaneously. And I got exposed to, you know, I basically through Grimes, I got, uh, is a, really a traditional education in Indian philosophy. Um, I learned the Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita, Yoga Sutra, Mahabharata. And when I was sort of exposed to just really ancient Indian spirituality, something in me just said, yes. Um, wow. So I just sort of went with that. Hmm. And what, what did that look like for in terms of your, what did you pursue after that? Um, after, after graduation, um, I worked a couple of years in advertising and I started practicing yoga simultaneously. Hmm. And uh, a few things lined up where I was basically offered the opportunity to teach yoga full time and I jumped at it. So... It's now 15 years ago. I took uh, I took a yoga training at the Omega Institute, Jiva Mukti Yoga, and that was a month long uh, yoga training. So basically, what it was was that the 
I had a really great foundation in Indian philosophy to begin with, but in terms of how that fit into like an asana practice or yoga teaching, I got a, an excellent, I got excellent training in that. And, and basically I've been seeking out training as a yoga teacher ever since. Mm -hmm. Yes, I read that you're, you're an 800 hour Dharma yoga teacher. That's a lot of hours for people who don't, for people who are not familiar. It's like you start at one and, and work up 800 is a, that's a, that's a lot of miles on the, uh, on the, the speedo. That's, um, that's some pretty dedicated study. Um, so how does then, so we've got, it's, it's just interesting to see how this all comes together for you because we've got the your religious studies background and the Lutheran background and the, the, the psychosynthesis-ish background or whatever that was for you at that point from Ken Wilbur is kind of sitting around in the background there as well. And then the, the Indian spirituality and the yoga are all coming together for you. And then you're uh, one of the, one of the, one of the places you're co-founder of is Ignatian yoga. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested to see what that means because I've never seen that. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, was a bit about what that what that looks like, how what and philosophically how that comes about. Yeah, well, that's that's a much bigger that's a much bigger story. Uh, I let me back up here. So mm. probably ten years ago, I decided to go get my master's in religious studies. And I, like, there's a Jesuit university, uh, University of Detroit Mercy in Detroit, where I live. So, uh, and they have a master's program. So um, I applied there. I found out that they had, at the time, they had a two-year internship in Ignatian spirituality. And I had no idea who St. Ignatius was. Um, right. He's Lutheran. He's a Catholic saint. Mm -hmm. Um, but I ended up meeting with a guy named Father Bernie Owens who ran this internship and uh, we just hit it off right away. Um, I think our first conversation, we were talking about John of the Cross and the Bhagavad Gita and Upanishads and meditation and contemplation. And I think I left that first meeting and just sort of knew that my whole life had changed. Uh, and so I ended up in this two-year, quote, internship in Ignatian spirituality. And there were just certain things about really the genius of Ignatius's spirituality that resonated with my yogic sensibilities, like being a person for others or finding God in all things or mm. being a contemplative in action. Uh, and... I just really took to his style of spirituality and uh, I ended up I ended up going through what's called the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, which is, I think traditionally it was like a 30 day, uh, you know, 30 day retreat. But the way I did it is they call it the spiritual exercises in everyday life, which is took me about 11 months, but usually it takes around eight. Um, and basically what it is is to do a series of meditations, uh, reflections, contemplations, prayers, 
it utilizes the imagination in profound ways. And you meet with a spiritual director once a week to talk about your experience and, mm. and digest it. And uh, so that kind of had, I don't know, that was just like, if I were to divide up my life, there's kind of like the pre-spiritual exercises and post-spiritual exercises. Mm. Okay. Um, so what was the impact of those months? Because that's, that's really interesting. Because I've heard of the, the spiritual exercises, but I've never actually gone through the, the process. But what was the change that it, it made in you? Uh, what was the change? It's hard to say. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the word, the Greek word is metanoia. So you have a change of mind and heart. So, and also part of sort of Ignatius's intention for the exercises is interior freedom. So for me, I think those, those two things were definitely took place. There was a kind of freedom from, in a certain sense, an over-identification with, you could say, a yogic sub-personality and more of a establishment in my my center my eye i guess in right. psychosynthesis language it would be like my the eye self relationship was mm -hmm. established more profoundly right and that kind of made all the difference uh That's now, really interesting. Yeah. i mean to yeah, get sorry, back to get back to your your original question is during that time um so this internship was really a training as a spiritual director. So, okay. and so I was being trained as a guide during that time. And, uh, I had, so one of my, one of my, one of my teachers, um, she was, she was leading a workshop with, uh, a young Jesuit who was in town during that time. Who was also a yoga practitioner and she, so you guys need to talk. Hmm. And uh, so we just got talking. And so he's a, he's a young Jesuit who's a yoga teacher. And I am a yoga teacher who's being really inspired by St. Ignatius's spirituality. And so our, we just started conversing around a lot of the overlap that we just, we found between these two traditions. And, you know, six years later, you know, we've been doing retreats all over the country. And he actually was in Australia, I think, a year, year and a half ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So what kind of... I've actually got a bunch of questions out of what you just said. <laughs> um, we'll just, just stick with what we're talking about for the moment, then we might go back. So what... I'm wondering what the kind of overlaps were that you found between... You've mentioned a few of them in practice, really, that idea of being able to anchor yourself more in your the capital I, I, so to speak, and the mm -hmm. I self relationship. Um, but I wonder what overlaps you guys found specifically when you were talking about between the, the, um, the philosophy of yoga and the, the Ignatian path and how you, how you then, what impact that had on you personally, even more so, I think, and then how you brought that into a place where you were able to start holding retreats and teaching about those principles? Great question. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's a lot. I know. So there's, that's like a big three parter. So take your time. Mm -hmm. 
So I think the best way is just to think about, again, I think like a psychosynthesist. So like when I'm, when I'm looking at traditions and I'm looking how things fit together, I'm looking at really the two dimensions of growth. So for example, you've got the, you've got the vertical dimension of awareness or contemplation you have the hor- or you know so or transpersonal psychosynthesis and you've got the horizontal dimension of personal psychosynthesis or action or the will and so like when i would read things like uh say contemplation and action right mm. and, and then actually how to the goal in ignatian spirituality is to become a contemplative in action you know, yes, I'm, I'm one of the notes that I made. I was really interested in that. Right. So it, I'm hearing, for example, a few things. So I'm hearing Asajoli's path of self-realization. It's not one or the other. It's both and. Right. The idea yeah. is you don't want to just overdevelop on one axis. You want to develop both in consort with one another. Mm-hmm. From, from the yogic tradition, this is in my book chapter, is more of the horizontal or the vertical dimension of yoga, we would say the classical definition of yoga is yoga shitta rittini rodaha. So yoga is a settling of the mind in the silence. Yes. So how we have a sense of, or some people would say yoga is a cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. Mm-hmm. So it's really how you're able to disidentify from the content of consciousness and have a sense of, an increased sense of awareness, right? But right. there's also the horizontal dimension of yoga, which is what's called yogaha karmasu koshalam from the Bhagavad Gita, which is yoga is skill in action or yoga is a f- effective or efficient action. Hmm. So it's like having that kind of understanding of both traditions, I'm seeing how that there's sort of resonances and parallels there. Hmm. And so how does that work when you're doing a retreat, when you're working with people? What kind of practices are you, are you working on them with? So the way we carved up the Ignatian yoga retreats is the spiritual exercises has what's called four weeks. So they're not weeks, but they're kind of like stages or stages isn't quite the right word. They're sort of movements. So like before you even begin the spiritual exercises, the first thing is to sort of be established in a sense of gratitude. So that's usually where we start the retreat. So like to recognize your life as a gift, your own self as a gift, uh, you know, everything in your life as an expression of the over the superabundance of God's grace. And then from that sort of posture of gratitude, you move into what's called the first week of the exercises where you recognize all the ways in which you've been separate. You've been sort of alienated from your true self or from others or from the divine or from nature. So any of the the ways in which you have not really honored the gift of your life. And then Mm -hmm. from there, you sort of move into the, the second week, which is really learning about what it means to be a disciple to be formed by your relationship in this case with Christ. And it sort of develops from there. We sort of follow this outline of the spiritual exercises 
and we line up sort of verses from the yoga sutras with these different movements of the exercises. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I'm really interested in this. What you, you've mentioned it a couple of times, how the the um, the disidentification process works, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, um, both from the point of view of um, well, the the first time that really kind of struck me was when you were talking about your masters and you were talking about that the change of the I think you said the mind in in mind and heart mm-hmm. um, and that disidentification that happened in you. Because it, it's, it, I often find it the case that the, the thing that we teach best is the thing that we have either worked on within us or the thing that has happened within us that we're able to uh, then share. Because it's, you know, when you walk into a room and the, the teacher is there and you know that the teacher has that presence of someone who has done the work and is just sitting in that, right? I'm sure you've had right. that experience. <laughs> It sounds like you've had a lot of guys who have had that experience, actually. Yeah. Um, and I, so I'm wondering what that was for you in the process of your your masters. That well, if there was a moment, if there were, or even a process culminating in a moment that gave you this aha moment. Not that there is really an aha moment necessarily of how this integration started happening for you. Yeah, I think psychosynthesis and my training with uh, with Dee Dee Furman and John Shotland was really helpful because I th- my my training in Vedanta, which is really the creme de la creme of Indian spirituality, you know, what I f- what I first learned was, you know, although I have a body, I'm not my body, right? Although I have a mind, I'm not my mind. You know, all that I have emotions, I'm not my emotions. So Hmm. I think when I heard that, that was really attractive to me as a kind of 19-year-old young person with an overactive mind. I was sort of looking for the off switch. (laughs) You know, it's like, okay, I'll learn how to meditate. That'll be great. I'll just be able to, quote, disidentify. Mm -hmm. What I realized later was that I think probably the best term would be something like spiritual bypass. It's like, mm-hmm. because yeah. I didn't have really nuanced language, it was like, I think the underlying kind of message I got was like pushing away the mind, pushing away the emotions, pushing away my humanity. Right. Yeah, I think that's and, a common message. And like hearing, I think I think the way Didi and John reframe it is, although I have a body and mind, I am more than the body, the mind, the emotions. So it sort of put everything within the context of self, which helped me actually own my humanity to sort of begin that process of really owning my own humanity and then actually discovering that really that's where the divine or the self is going to express itself is through your humanity where what else is it going to express through so that was kind of but that language really helped me Mm. it's not that i'm not my body it's although i have a body i'm more than my body and i think that reframe really change things for me right 
Yeah. Um, I'm just, I don't know why I'm just reminded of that um, that thing that happens when you're when you did you I don't know if you ever had this moment of being put in front of uh, teachers where you realize that your your ego wasn't going to get you anywhere. I've no I, I've no idea if this is going to end up in the interview or not, but um, <laughs> it is you seem to have stated with a, a lot of people who have done you know, who have, who have been very into the, the process of that inter, integration and spiritual integration. And I just remember, cause my, I've been, my process has actually been very different cause I didn't have, I think I probably had the least Christian upbringing of anybody I know. There was just literally nothing. There was no kind of spiritual aspect to my upbringing at all. So I kind of discovered Zen on my own many years later. And I ended up at um, the Zen center in LA and for some reason, the first time I went there, they said, oh, you should see the Roshi. And I was terrified. Because, you know, I, I mean, I, I started off, I went to France, I went to um, Plum Village and Thich Nhat Hanh and all those guys. So I was kind of aware that, you know, the real teachers have that presence. Mm-hmm. And so, but to be left one-on-one with the, the head of ZCLA, who was a direct student of Maizumi and all that, that was, and I, I sat down in front of her and I mean, she was perfectly nice, but I had that moment that, that you read about in, in those books where you sit down on the cushion and you immediately have that deep desire to jump up the cushion <laughs> and run as fast as you possibly can. And uh, I mean, I I didn't, of course, and she was she was perfectly fine. It was turned out to be one of those. It was a short conversation, but it's been one of those kind of formative experiences for me. The first time I met her, and it's it's just those moments when you realise, ah, oh, there's there's a whole a there's a whole other structure that's in there that you can access, and b the structure that has got you this far is limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of personal structure, personality structure, ego structure, which is not that it's wrong, but it's limited. Um, I'm not sure where that's exactly leading us, but I, I just I just kept thinking about that moment as you were telling some of those stories about the disidentification and the um, the acknowledgement that we we can let let go of some of those things that they'll still be there. Um, Do you mind if I, I respond? Yeah, please. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I totally resonate with what you're with what you're saying, and definitely have had those moments myself. Um, one of the things that I think psychosynthesis really helped me appreciate more was the value of the. I mean, I don't even like to say the word ego because it kind of has like when you say that connotations, doesn't it? Yeah, I think. I think what people are usually think when they think ego is self-centeredness. Right. Right. And really, you know, and a lot of the messages that I got that were, I think, very harmful to me and things that I, as a yoga teacher, I I sort of, and I mean, I speak against this now is that the idea is that you want to get rid of your ego or kill the ego or eliminate the ego. I just think that's, I just think that's bad advice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's harmful for, and then I think oftentimes yoga teachers will take it upon themselves to think that that is their job to remove their students' egos, mm-hmm. which turns into a kind of violence against the student. 
um, subtle or otherwise. So this whole idea of that the personality as really a vessel through which the self can express itself. Now, the personality can be congested. I love that. I think Asajoli yeah. uses that phrase, right? So the That's idea is word, yeah. you want to yeah. just sort of give the personality some sort of decongestant so it can breathe <laughs> and it yeah. can actually allow more of the energy of the self to express itself through the personality into the world. So the idea is not so much to get rid of the thing, but in a way to allow the thing to open. And what, what I started to gather through, whether it was through St. Ignatius or through bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion, is that the way in which the, quote, ego or personality opens is within the atmosphere of unconditional acceptance, which you could mm -hmm. say, you could say self, right? Sometimes they, in psychosynthesis, people call it the loving observer, right? right. So it's not, it's not simply the observer is like the inner critic, but it's, yes, exactly. There's it's differentiation the, there. Absolutely. It's the loving observer that actually can be present to and can hold in empathy the fullness of your experience. And if you can tap into that, then the, then the personality can open like a flower. It can blossom. Mm -hmm. And then more, right? It can be a better container for the energies of the soul or the self. Yes. Right. So let's talk about that then. How do you approach that with your, we still we haven't even touched on your psychosynthesis training, but I want to get into the yoga because I, I want you to talk about how you, how you found that for yourself with the, with the yoga practice because that's something that um, I've, I've been a yoga practitioner off and on for years and much more, more dedicated in the last couple of years now. How does that work for you as a yoga practitioner and how do you bring that kind of the synthesis aspect to your yoga training and your teaching what does that look like what does that look like yeah i mean i don't even know if i have a, a good answer for that i think it's really like I'm very happy with the bad answer don't worry yeah about so it. <laughs> I, here, here's my bad answer and i think if you if you go on youtube and you there's a little five minute video of asajoli being interviewed and, you know, someone's asked him about what is psychosynthesis. And he basically says it's an inner attitude. So I think that's number one, like the way in which I approach teaching yoga and my own practice, there's a kind of inner attitude there. Mm -hmm. And then I think he goes on. It's like, it's about, it's, it's how a person utilizes methods when they utilize the methods or techniques within with who they use them with and mm -hmm. kind of the intention behind it all. So it's not simply when I teach yoga that I'm teaching a set of techniques. Okay. Now we're doing this asana. Now we're doing this pranayama. Now we're doing this mantra or we're doing this meditation technique, yeah. but it's, it's how it's done and it's who is actually doing it. <clears throat> so it's like the quality of my own consciousness that I bring to teaching that I think is fundamental. And one of the things that I always do when I teach is I show up to serve, right? right. So like, it's not about me as a teacher, but it's about creating an atmosphere, 
atmosphere if you know say some kind of experience of transformation wants to happen and it can happen and i'm not going to get in the way of that right yeah um what was i gonna there's there's lots in there as well um I'm just looking at your chapter now because we're kind of there, which is great. And you've you've talked about you know the word yoga often being translated as union, which is obviously a parallel for psychosynthesis there. Um, and you talk about it again. You're saying is that both the method to be practiced and the goal to be experienced simultaneously. Um, I'm just flicking through because I want to ask you some questions about the chapter, but I also just kind of just want to talk and see what happens. Um, well, actually, let's talk then about your your psychosynthesis training because we've kind of jumped over that because it sounds as though that was much earlier in your in your timeline than um than i thought and then if we can talk maybe a little about how that works in your in your yoga practice and more in relation to the chapters so what can you talk a, a bit about how you discovered psychosynthesis with Didi and john and how you trained with them and then how that that came back again as you're as you're practicing yoga now which led you to write this chapter in the book that's a great question so like i mentioned i was trained as a spiritual director within you know it's a ignatian catholic context and i loved like when i sort of discovered that there was this thing called a spiritual director where you're basically learning how to listen to people in a profound way. And like, I think, yeah, Parker Palmer sort of says something like listening a person into being. So that really resonated with me. And I, I realized that as a yoga teacher, people would come into my office after class and they would ask me questions and I would, Mm -hmm. I was trying to give them answers, but I slowly started to realize they don't actually want me to answer their questions. They want me to hear them. It took, I was sort of slow on the uptake there. Right. Um, but what I found was that the front, like, so if, if I'm, if people are coming to me and it's sort of outside of a specific religious context, I needed a different language in order to really meet them where they were and work with them. And sort of the sort of specific Catholic context of spiritual direction was somewhat limiting to me of working with people within a yoga context. So I brought this up to my uh, my Jesuit priest mentor, Father Bernie, and he said, check out either Jungian psychology or psychosynthesis. And uh, it took me a while, actually, to find some stuff on psychosynthesis, but I I think I gradually stumbled upon these online videos, these interviews with with Didi and Piero and Tom Yeomans and Molly Young Brown and John Furman. And I knew right away when I started listening to those that 
this is what I was looking for, that these people had a language that was able to articulate really the different dimensions of psycho-spiritual growth. And I didn't have to invite, invent the language, right? The language already existed. And that was like right. so exciting for me. Right. That's um, super important, isn't it? To be able to step into a language that already works without having to reinvent the wheel. Exactly. So from there, I sort of, I reached out to, I think I reached out to Tom Yeomans and Molly Young-Brown. They directed me to Dee Dee because she was doing some training. And yeah, this was, I think about seven years ago. And I just jumped in with both feet. I took, I took, I think both their, I ended up with an advanced psychosynthesis practitioner degree or whatever <laughs> certification. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I just, I just ate it up. And I, I guess when I discovered, I just felt like I, I knew it already from inside. And that was, I think mm -hmm. one of the great joys of stumbling upon psychosynthesis is that it just felt consistent and kind of congruent with my own inner understanding of how things fit together, whether that came from yoga or the Ignatian tradition. And what, what happened for me is I realized that what I was really interested in was this process of psychosynthesis. Like Tom Yeomans talks about psychosynthesis with a big P and a small P and big P is like the school, right? And that, that Roberto Asagioli founded, but small P is like this soul process work, this, this sort of process of how we grow and develop that's totally natural and it's in a certain sense universal. And that to me was like, this is so exciting. This is what I care about. And this is what I'm interested in facilitating in the lives right. of people, whether I'm a spiritual director or a yoga teacher or coach, it's really about that. And that was like a light bulb went off for me. Mm -hmm. I really like what you were, the, the, the word facilitating really kind of resonates for me because that's something that I'm coming more and more around to doing. And that's partly because I'm finishing the coaching program now. I'm kind of in the, in the current intake with finishing it in like another six weeks or something like that, the official training. Nice. And that's, that's been one of the things that has, that's really shown up for me that um, facilitating because I've done a lot of teaching in the worlds of, um, I'm a meditation teacher, but I also teach a lot of acting. I teach some creative processes to young kids. I teach, well, I sort of teach screenwriting. It's script development. I just don't tell them I'm teaching them how to be a writer with some guys in various places, LA and whatnot. But the, I, it's become really clear to me that the facilitating is super important and really meaningful to me. And the thing that I find best is that it's the same as directing plays or films for me is that you it's what you were saying before you you're creating the atmosphere in which everybody else can then open up and bring out the best of what they they have and develop that um that's that's been the thing that's really kind of shone the light for me on this kind of work in particular is that it's a great way to do that with a framework that's already there and also you can bring your own stuff to it. Um, and I'm wondering, so then how does that, how do you do that facilitation in a yoga studio? 
because there's the, you know, there's the classic form of the yoga studio that's teach a student, right? Or teach a group of students. And, you know, you talk about in the chapter that one of the, one of the most useful psychosynthesis maps for teachers and for students is Asagili's path of realization, which harmonizes these two dimensions of growth you were talking about before the vertical and the horizontal. So I'm wondering how you do that in the context of a class, how do you bring people to um, an experience of both the, the vertical, as it were, the kind of potential to contact the, or, or recognize contact with the higher self and also the understanding and acceptance and integration of the personality. That's a lot, but how does that work for you in the context of going into a room to teach a class? Yeah, I think what, you know, part of like what my chapter is pointing toward is that for a number of students, just taking, just taking the class, they're going to want to go deeper. And so they're going to want to meet individually, which is sort of the, the benefit of being trained as a psychosynthesis coach, as a right. yoga teacher. Yeah. Is, so I've, I've been meeting with yoga students who are interested in continuing their personal growth journey. Mm. And so, you know, that can happen where someone comes out of my class and they're like, you know, I really like what you had to say today. And I'd like to talk more about whatever this is coming up in my life right now. Mm. And, you know, part of the beauty of being a yoga teacher is that people trust you, you know, if you, right. People, Yes. So you just, you just have this sort of like, it's an amazing, it's an amazing gift to be welcomed into people's lives in the way, like in this way, as a yoga teacher, I, I, I don't know anything like it. And so if you're, if people want to learn more, if people want to sort of have a little bit more individually tailored time, then they might ask to basically do coaching. Um, right. Or I'll invite them, say, well, I do this. Are you interested? And they're like, yes. And that's right. sort of where maybe this process of the path of self-realization, according to Asajoli, you know, over the course of five or six sessions or even longer, we might follow. Hmm. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's interesting. And so they're doing, they're doing that in conjunction with their yoga practice. Right. And, so they may so come you're integrating class. those two. Absolutely. So they, they may come to class and then say after class, I might meet with a client and you will do some coaching work. And man, doing coaching after a really great yoga class is like a wonderful thing to do because you're sort of already tuned in. Yeah, um, I was just going to say that sounds <laughs> ideal. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's a lovely thing. Right. So how does that how does that work with the can you talk for people who aren't necessarily you know we're just jumping out to the listener for the moment for people who aren't so uh familiar with Asajoli's path of the self-realization how how would you go through that with them over the course of let's let's say five, five or six sessions or however long it takes okay so i think again these two dimensions of growth of that psychosynthesis sort of has two stages of the vertical, uh, kind of a spiritual psychosynthesis where you're connecting with that higher dimension of 
yourself, the higher self, and also the horizontal where you are uh, basically able to live your life with a sense of more meaning, effectiveness, uh, being able to achieve the things that you think are important to you, and then synthesizing those, bringing those things together. Mm-hmm. And the way Asajoli talks about the synthesis of these is he says, so the first stage is removing the obstacles from the personality. And, you know, I think John Shotland, when he taught this, said, you know, these days we wouldn't say something like removing, but we might say something like harmonizing or, uh, how to say, maybe assimilating certain things in the personality that are stuck and need a little right. bit of movement, right? So one of the things that I found most useful with clients is this whole concept of subpersonalities. So, you know, a person comes in and they there's they might mention some something something about themselves that is challenging or frustrating or that they want to get rid of. You know, and so it's like, well, tell me about that part of yourself. And just by utilizing that language of that part of yourself uh, is so freeing. And to recognize that these different parts of ourselves are trying to help us, but they don't, you know, but they're just limited. They're probably from a younger portion of our life. So the idea is not to become, to try to get rid of it, but to actually get to know it, to, to really establish a good relationship to accept that part of ourself is so freeing for people Mm -hmm. i mean it's one of the like the greatest gifts that i feel like almost immediately i was able to offer students so they're not just in this constant tug of war with different parts of themselves they're able to really create more space for themselves and also to find what is good what the transpersonal quality is inside of say an inner child or even even an inner critic, a part that's maybe trying to protect them. Mm-hmm. So that's one. That's sort of the first stage, which is incredibly useful. Right. That's great. And how does that how does that play out for them over the course of six weeks? What's kind of a a pre, some pre, uh, well, what's a, a trajectory for them insofar as there can be a trajectory for this kind of work? Um, how does that work for you by the time they're at kind of the, the six or so session that you've gone through together? Um, I know there's a, t- that's a terribly general question, but just giving, to give people a bit of an idea of the overall process and what people get out of it by the time they've gone through it with you. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this, uh, there's this model called the spiral of evolution. So basically, where are you? Where are you going? You know, what's emerging in your life? What's calling to you right now? What's getting in your way? And what do you need to develop in order to overcome that obstacle or to like express more of that quality in your life? And that sort of that's usually the rhythm is where are you where are you going what's what's your sense of purpose what's getting in the way 
and then what needs to be developed in order for you to progress. So that's usually kind of this model that, you know, and it could go either way. Like someone might come in with a clear sense of purpose. And so we start there or a person might come in with a clear sense of like an obstacle and we start there. But usually at some point we're going to dip in, we're either going to take a dip into the lower unconscious first, which is something they call a down, up, down. You go down into the lower unconscious, then up into the higher unconscious and back into the center. Or you do an up, down, up, right? It's like, okay, here's really what, where I want to go. I want to become a more effective yoga teacher, but I'm fearful of speaking in public, right? That would be lower unconscious, right? So working on that level, um, that's usually the rhythm. So the egg diagram is like an extremely helpful model for me. Uh, right. Can you talk to the talk to the listener who is a little less familiar with the egg diagram than we are about what that is and how actually that's helpful for you and maybe how you explain it to people as well because that might be helpful for people who are coming to this for the first time. Sure. Um, so the egg diagram is Asajoli's uh, map of the human psyche and. Asajoli was a student of Freud initially, and Freud said he, that he was only interested in the basement of human consciousness. And Asajoli wanted to put, you know, a first floor, a second floor, a skylight, and an elevator in the building. So <laughs> everything was connected, right? So he, he understood that, you know, we're not, uh, we're not just the basement, we're not just our wounding, right? But we also have, like what's called the middle unconscious, like, you know, what things that we just know how to do through repetition, through habit, through practice. We also have a higher unconscious, which, you know, it's all our giftedness, all of our beauty, all of our potentiality, what wants to come into our life. But in the, in the same way that we repress the lower unconscious, the area of wounding, we also repress our own giftedness. And there's this phrase, the repression of the sublime, mm. because maybe we're afraid of it. We're afraid of actually stepping into it or owning that possibility, that potential. So usually, uh, I mean, the way I understand is whenever you are going to uh, either do some healing in the lower unconscious, you're going to tap into some of the potential and beauty and giftedness of the higher unconscious. And whenever you want to bring in more of your potential into your life, there's a corresponding healing that's going to take place in the lower unconscious. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that you actually want to become, you need a strong center. You need a strong connection to your eye in the center of the egg so that you can actually hold both. Right. Mm. So you're, you're not, you're not, trying to reach for the higher unconscious and live there. And you're not also stuck in the lower you're anchored. Right. You've got a great quote in your chapter about this, actually, that I'm just looking at this. Um, you're talking about contemplative education, actually, but you're talking about um, creating the conditions to draw out the latent possibilities from the unconscious to activate the energies that are dormant in it, particularly in its highest sphere, which is the superconscious, which is you're quoting Asajoli there, but that's very much what you're 
you're really referring to there is allowing people the space to explore more of themselves. And that, that seems to be a big aspect of what you're talking about, both in the coaching um, sessions that you're doing with people, but also the atmosphere you're looking to create in the yoga studio. Um, what else was, oh yes, can you talk about bhavana for a minute? Um, yeah, that's a, a slight sidebar for people who are listening, but bhavana is a, a beautiful term and I use it a lot when I'm starting to teach meditation classes uh, because I find there's a lot, it's a really great foundational uh, moment for people to have to realize that they can have that uh, contemplative experience in meditation. And I wondered what that meant for you and how you went about it and what you used it within your pra- in your practice. That's, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was just in December, I was in uh, Florence and I was, uh, my wife and I, we went to Casa Asajoli and we were going through Asajoli's uh, handwritten archives. And I, I was able to go through this little folder on yoga. And in, in one of the, one of the, the folders, it was this handwritten note that said this. So he's talking about asana, the yoga poses. And this is mm-hmm. Asajoli's own writing. It says, assuming the physical, emotional, and, me- and mental attitudes or postures, quote unquote postures, or responding to the quality or the energy which we will to evoke and develop. And then he says, use it. And he underlines it twice. <laughs> Oh, great. That's a great instruction. Yeah. So for me, this is a perfect description of bhavana, right? So you move into, when you you move through asanas, the asanas have a physical shape. And Mm -hmm. so by assuming the physical shape, you can actually access a kind of mental or emotional inner attitude, right? Just, I mean, just by, you know, putting the shoulders back or standing upright or relaxing your shoulders, you're going to have a different kind of mental or emotional feel. So in an asana practice, if you look at all these asanas, they're all named after A, things in nature. Uh, B, they're named after the sort of uh, the, the mythical heroes and the spiritual heroes of yoga, like Shiva, the archetypal yogi, Hanuman, Mm-hmm. Um, all, all the different sages. So there's all these different, there's, and there's a, there's stories behind all these. So if you can get, if you have a sense of the kind of inner attitude of say Hanuman, who's taking a big leap forward, who's living with an open heart, who's fearless and courageous, that's different than if you just do the splits as a gymnast. Right. Right. So to me, it's like, Bhavana is about the inner mood of the pose, mm. the inner mood of the practice, and about accessing the transpersonal qualities of, say, courage, fearlessness, devotion to something bigger than yourself. In the case of, say, Hanumanasana, I mean that's then then you're actually talking about yoga rather than, you know, one of my teachers has called it Eastern stretch, right? Yeah, it's like or gymnastics. Yeah. 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 That's, um, I think that's a, that's a very 
Oh, yes, I've actually put a little asterisk here on this part of the chapter. <laughs> it says, that because you've written here, that the personality, rather than being eliminated, comes into service of the self. And in that context, it's really interesting to note the, the importance of the, the physical and emotional and mental experience that you have while you're going through the physical practice of yoga. Um, which I find very interesting personally. There's such a different practice to meditation and yet is exactly the same at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very interesting to me. Uh, actually, I'm curious also what kind of, when you're talking about setting up this, you were talking before, sorry, throwing back again, you were talking before about, you were talking about what you say in the yoga class which is pretty, it's a common practice for yoga teachers to have a bit of a conversation with students during the course of the class. I'm wondering what kind of things you talk to them about. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's that's a bit of a curveball, I know, but I just, I'm so aware because I've been, you know, I've been in a few of those rooms now and sometimes it's you, you it's it's absolute gold and sometimes having read a few of the sutras you go oh not quite right so you're yeah. you're clearly somebody who has done a lot of the work and the reading in that world specifically and i wonder what what that sounds like what do you what kind of things do you talk about yeah so usually uh the way i teach is i'll riff off a theme for for a month. So there will be a focus of the month. Um, and one of my teachers, Sri Dharma Mitri, says that everything a yoga teacher says should be grounded in either one of three books, the Yoga Sutras, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, or the Bhagavad Gita. So otherwise, he says it's like the spaghetti without the sauce. So right. you know, I try to actually teach from the tradition and at the same time to like make it accessible and meaningful and relevant to like a modern practitioner. So essentially that's, that's what I do day in and day out is I'm thinking about the text and then I'm bringing to bear whether it's sort of psychological implications, uh, how it relates to a spiritual practice, how it relates to a life well lived, mm-hmm. um, how it connects to different traditions, how different traditions are talking about the same principle or idea. I might sort of dance around that by telling you know a couple of different stories or a little mm-hmm. anecdote about something that I had you know an experience with one of my teachers and how it illustrates that. So. I mean, I think the thing about a yoga, a yoga teacher, I think this is relevant. Uh, Krishnamacharya was really one of the, I don't know, the great grandfathers of modern Western yoga. He said, if you're a yoga teacher, you need, you need three things. Uh, first, you actually need a lineage, you need the blessings of those who've come before you, right? That you've been recognized by your teachers that 
you're qualified to teach yoga. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, that you practice what you teach and you teach what you practice. It's like you said, like there's a different kind of inner authority that comes from someone who's actually been there and done that. Yeah. And then the last thing he says, you actually have to love your students, right? So if it's just about me and it's about, you know, I, I show up and I just talk about myself, which you get a lot in different, you know, yeah. yoga teachers who just teach yoga, but really they stand up there because they have no one ever listened to them before. And now people are listening to them. So <laughs> they're satisfying that need, you know? Yeah. So it's, yeah. Like, it's like, why am I speaking? Right. It's like, that's a great question to ask, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I heard one coach, they, they use an analogy or what is an acronym? Wait, why am I talking? <laughs> that's good. I, it's like, that's a great thing for a yoga teacher to ask. Why am I talking? Right. Like how is this somehow enhancing or enriching the student's experience of yoga mm. is it do is it doing that or is it is it getting in the way mm. can we talk a bit about teachers again then um because one of the when we were emailing back and forth getting ready for this chat you were saying that um work of thomas yeomans was particularly influential on you um can you give us a little bit of a, a rundown on how he's been influential on you and what what you take from his work in particular and how that that influences you yeah his uh i think he's his book is just out on amazon by the way he, oh okay what's it, do you know what it's called yeah it's called holy fire the process of soul awakening and uh i read like a, a proof of it it's brilliant it's okay. And it's really like the sign of a master of any discipline is they can take like a lifetime of knowledge, distill it down and write it in a way that in a way almost anyone can digest. Yeah. And yeah, his book is incredibly readable. I highly recommend it. You know, like one of the things that I love about Tom's approach is, is this idea that really the individual's own soul is the teacher. Right. So like in turn back going back to facilitation, it's not necessarily about the teacher. Like, for example, mm-hmm. a yoga teacher, a guru is going to give you something is that the person's own soul is the guide. So the, the job of a teacher, the job of a coach is to really listen for the soul and the way in which you listen to the soul. One of the symptoms of the soul is aliveness. Right. So where do, where does the individual come alive and, you know, and where, where do where do they find joy? Where do they find gratitude? So like as a, as a coach, I'm always really listening for that in my clients. So this idea of aliveness is a kind of indicator of soul. And this other idea that I really appreciate about his work is the soul as really desiring to incarnate. So I think he wrote an article called The Descent of the Higher Self. I mean, and usually in the modern Western culture, we emphasize what's called like ascendancy or ascendant transcendence, something like that, like going up, 
up and out. And his idea is that you do need some transcendence. You need some perspective. You need a sense of the larger context of your life to see things from, say, the perspective of the soul. But that's not the end, that actually the soul wants to incarnate and express itself more deeply through your life, through the practicalities, through the details of your life. And this sort of incarnational approach to psychosynthesis and to his own kind of spiritual psychology is so valuable for yoga practitioners because it sort of upends this whole idea of that I'm going to get something from a tea. I don't have something and I'm going to get it from a guru, right? So it actually helps a per person become more sensitive to their own deepest core or their soul and also helps them recognize that their daily living is itself the spiritual path. And for me, those, those ideas have been just so significant and so relevant, I think, as a kind of corrective to some of the, I don't know, I think spiritual bypass tendencies within the yoga, yoga community. Yeah, and I think there's something really important too around facilitating, as you said, for the teacher who's then able to build the framework and just hold space um, for people to have that experience that actually what they're experiencing is the important lesson. And that's uh, I, because I, it happens in meditation too somewhat, I think, that we people find that the, think that the goal is to learn how to meditate well. And that's often the problem because that creates, <laughs> you know, you, you were talking before about kind of the yoga subpersonality and it's kind of the same as the meditation subpersonality is to be a good meditator or to be a, a master of the, the whatever. Um, but in fact, that is just as much of a problem as the thing that you're often trying to get away from. Whereas if you can be as present and make the framework with people, to discover that actually their experience is is fine as it is it's like the you know the the buddhist discussion is that the feeling itself is not necessarily the problem it's the the way we try to manipulate or stop the feeling that causes suffering and takes us further away from ourselves um and that making a framework where you can show people that it's okay to just be as they are in a given moment and that they are held in that by the teacher specifically and then that also allows you to develop community around that which is really important i think absolutely it's so well said uh let me see there's so much more we could say susan said oh yeah you guys can just have like a 20 to 30 minute interview and it's fine and now we're kind of ticking over to an hour 15 which is great um I'm just there's oh there's something one of the one of the authors that I'm really digging into at the moment is Piero Ferrucci, and uh, you've mentioned him in your chapter talking about uh, the the idea this idea of the the life path, mm -hmm. and I, I think that's a really interesting thing to talk about because it's not something we give a lot of credit to in the the Western world. Um, and very, very quickly, just talking about this little quote you've inserted 
of Piero Ferrucci. According to the Eastern doctrine of Dharma, we're called on to achieve a particular life pattern. And very briefly moving on, the idea is that we should try to find the possibility that is our own life pattern and not somebody else's, and then cooperate with that pattern, which is a really interesting idea because we've, we're very much in this, uh, in this stage culturally of trying to uh, what might be called self-actualized, but self-actualizing through what looks like a, a pretty heavily constructed path of individual progress. And this is very much not that. And I wonder if you can talk a bit about that and how that appeals to you. I mean, this is the heart of what I do as a coach is right. listening for the individual's unique dharma, their unique pattern, their unique way of doing things. Um, and I think this is sort of against the kind of modern everyone, you know, there's 30 people in a yoga class. Everyone's doing the same thing. Yoga has never been taught like that. I mean, <laughs> it's so new, right? Like that way of teaching yoga is so new in the history of yoga. Is if you were fortunate enough to find someone who knew yoga, it would you they would teach you one to one or maybe one to two, and it would be based on what are your interests, what stage of life are you at. What are your goals? What do you hope to get out of your yoga practice? And then the practice would be customized to that individual with an eye to what's in Sanskrit would be their swa dharma, their unique calling to be, their unique vocation to be who they are, right? right. Rather, than, rather than everyone fits into the same suit, you know, mm. and this is part of, you know, these days it's like, I'm interested in yoga. I go become a yoga teacher and then mm. I mimic what my yoga teacher does. And so there's actually no individuality. It's just, you sort of, I don't know, you've, you've taken on the pattern of your yoga teacher rather than actually become more of yourself. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. Mm. So when you're, and, and when you're working with your, um, clients in that coaching context i mean we talked about the path of realization before i imagine that's also something that you're trying to instill in them in the yoga studio as well which is kind of an interesting little paradox isn't it because you've got a group of people who you're who you're working with in this very recently devised way of teaching yoga and at the same time you're encouraging them to find this um the pattern or the calling, you might say, in a psychosynthesis context that's kind of sitting sitting there waiting to be realized. Right, right. So like within, well, let me just back up for a second here. So within the context of like individual coaching, one of the one of the tools that I use at the at the outset is that I'll email people Asajoli's seven paths to self-realization, where you know he talks about seven styles of making meaning and i'll just say you know is there one or a couple of these that really resonate with you and they'll they'll read the it's like six page document they'll read it and they'll say yeah i really resonate with the way of beauty or the way of ritual or mm -hmm. and the idea is that 
given that, it's given me a sense of like, what's their unique style? How do they actually relate to the transpersonal? And then what are the practices that might be most helpful for that individual based on that? And also what are some things that maybe are left out that they'll, this kind of a shadow that they might have to include a little bit later in our work together. But mm. that's like a way in which in a very broad way, it's like, how do you do things? How are, how do you naturally grow and unfold and develop? And let's try to collaborate with that. Now, within the context of a yoga class, I'm always balancing these two things of giving people total permission to modify, to adapt, you know, any pose at any time for any good or no good reason, according to what that person needs. <laughs> yeah. That day. Mm -hmm. And this awareness that we're all together, that, that we're kind of moving and breathing together, that we're a part of a larger kind of collective and that we're adding to the symphony by our presence, by our, our work together as, as we go through this yoga practice. So there's always this, you know, it's a both end of giving people permission to be themselves and also to recognize that they're contributing to the larger culture of the class by being. And that's, by being, um, yes. so this kind of like, in a way, it's the way I kind of think about it is sort of subpersonality work is that you want to get all the subpersonalities playing, you know, the image that gets used is like subpersonalities are like members of the symphony. Right. So everyone is adding to it and no one, no one instrument's dominating. So that adds to the music of the experience. So everyone has, by being there, is adding something to it and bringing their own unique flavor to the group experience. It's, it's in a way it's group psychosynthesis is the way I understand it. Yeah. That's a great way of looking at it. Um, I wonder, can we talk briefly again? This is this is just something that I'm interested in because I haven't been there yet. Um, I wondered if we could talk about Casa Asajoli, yeah, and what kind of a place that is, what influence it's had on you. Because I know you've you've been there. How many times have you been there? Twice. Twice. What draws you? Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I, number one. It's 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 where Asajoli lived, right? So, and that's where the teaching. It's sort of the mothership. So, to me, it's like if you can connect to, you know, the the root, do that, right? So, uh, I think for me, what was most interesting the first time I went there was walking into the library and looking at all of Basajoli's books and seeing a lot of the same books that are on my bookshelf. Like <laughs> right. the, the first thing, the, like the first bookshelf that I looked at, I saw the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, Khalil Gibran, the prophet, Walt Whitman. I mean, the, the, all of my kind of heroes. And then there was like 10 different copies of the Bhagavad Gita. No. The, wow. The, the collected works of Swami Vivekananda, not to mention all of these sort of incredible psychological texts on creativity. I was like, this is a man after my own heart. I just felt like 
I do feel a, a deep resonance with his particular genius of the way he was able to synthesize many different spiritual disciplines, many different psychological systems, and really create a framework where you can hold all of this stuff. And so I just, I, when I first went there, that was the first thing that struck me. I was like, oh, like it helped me give a sense of like, I'm a part of an intellectual ancestry mm. that I didn't know existed until I really discovered Asajoli's work. Right. And that reminds me of something else that you've written in the chapter as well about the, the contemplative process of reading. Mm. Um, can you talk a, a little bit about how that works for you? Because there's a way in which you discuss in the chapter that reading can be a contemplative and spiritual benefit to you depending on the, the attitude and the, the process that you bring to it. Yeah, I mean, two things. One, I really like this idea of Asajoli called it bibliotherapy. So you kind of meditate on a person and then they'd say, you know what? This book would be a great book for you right now. And mm. they would read it and they would be like, oh, my. like they discover themselves in the book or in the mm. journey of the main character or something. And so I think there's some incredible value of the right book at the right time for the right person can be incredibly, I don't know, healing, cathartic, illuminating. Uh, so that's its own kind of, I think, an important intervention that a person, that a, a guide can offer a client. Um, this other thing of like reading as a contemplative practice or as for formative edu education, I think Asajoli uses that phrase, is, I mean, this is universal in, in Sanskrit, it's called swadhyaya, mm -hmm. which is to, to draw close to the self, to draw close to the, to the divine through reading. And so like the best sort of articulation that I know of this is in the Catholic tradition, they call it Lexio Divina, where you actually, you read, first thing you do is you read the word, then you meditate on the passage, and then you enter into a dialogue with the author of that passage, and then you sort of rest in a kind of contemplative stillness in the wake of your reading, meditation, and really prayer or conversation or inner dialogue. And that, that process is, you know, that's as old as, I don't know, St. Benedict or Christianity itself. But that's, again, it's a, it's a way of engaging with the material rather than I'm just collecting more and more and more information. And I think that's a really important point because we have so much information now. Um, I remember um, a Dharma talk with a, a Western uh, Buddhist monastic who said, Look, you know, we, one of the problems is that we have so much information now. Mm -hmm. that in the in the old days, the very old days, if there was a, a teacher coming, people would, he was talking in the Buddhist con context, so he was talking about India principally, people would leave the fields when they heard that there was a teacher, they would walk for a couple of days, 
and they would stand at the very back of the crowd and they would maybe be able to hear 20% of what was actually said and then they walked back to their homes mm-hmm. and that was the spiritual teaching they had to work with for their life. Mm-hmm. Whereas now we're in the position where there's always a book, there's always a recording, there's always a download. So there's always something to be um, absorbed or, dare I say, consumed. But the difficulty I find is exactly as you're articulating, we need a process through which we can absorb this in the way that we actually want it to impact on us. Mm-hmm. And that that's a, what you're talking about is a really important process for how to actually read and to have it make a difference to us. Um, it, it seems to be a really necessary antidote, not that there's anything wrong with reading widely. I mean, as you said, Asajoli seems to have absorbed enormous amounts throughout his life and so do, so do many people. But I think it's almost a an element of the the spiritual bypass that we can most easily remedy is rather than seeing that there's some kind of gain to be had by having all of these books to be able to sit and absorb them. There's this, uh, this phrase that uh, she's a, she was a professor at university of Michigan, Melissa Pete. She said, transformation without integration is fragmentation. And what she's pointing at is like slightly different, but we have so much access to not only information, but also weekend retreats, workshops, transpersonal kind of guided imagery experiences or shamanic journeying that just blows a person out. But if you actually don't integrate that, it it leads more toward fragmentation rather than integration or transformation. And so this is, again, part of the reason I love psychosynthesis is it's like one, one day I take a workshop with about mindfulness and that next weekend I take a shamanic journeying workshop. The next thing I'm doing, I don't know, Christian meditation. There's mm. so much material. How do you integrate it all? And how do you have a framework to see what does what, right? Like everything is good for something. Not everything is doing the same thing. Having an understanding of, say, the egg diagram or the six psychological functions or the different stages of self-realization can help a person know how to catalog all these different resources and then intelligently draw upon them rather than sort of ping-ponging around without being able to distill anything. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a Tom Yeomans quote in your chapter which I might just mention as we start to draw to a bit of a close of the, the formal chat anyway the stunning paradox of human spiritual maturity is that as we become one with all life we also at the same time become completely and uniquely ourselves and I wondered just to close if you had uh, any thoughts about the kinds of practices you're specifically doing for yourself at the moment that might be helpful. Um, if there's anything in particular you might recommend to people who are looking for something either to read or as a as a, a short, easy practice. There's no need if you if there's nothing that occurs to you, there's no need. But I just wondered if there was something that you might uh, be able to talk about around 
the practice, your practice at the present? Um, right now, I'm studying dialectical behavior therapy, and which is sort of interesting because it is very kind of synthetic in the sense of like not either or but both and. But there's this they talk about these different skills, and one of the skills is distress tolerance. Is what do you do when the reality of your life you can't change? Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, to, just sort of in the midst of the coronavirus, to me, this seems like the main. You can, in a way, in a way you could say, it's sort of strong will uh, in psychosynthesis is how do you actually radically accept where you are, change what you can change. And also recognize what you can't change, mm. and 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 then also uh, this particular psychologist, Marshall Linehan, says the first thing is don't make things worse, right? So like in the middle of a crisis, first thing is don't make it worse, mm. and I just think that's like for me that's such a relevant idea now given kind of the state of affairs on the planet. And I think to kind of coincide with that is because, you know, I've been in, not in quotes, self-quarantine per se, but I'm home, you know, I'm not not teaching Mm -hmm. classes right now because of the virus. Is Asa Jolie's uh, freedom in jail, right? So Asa Jolie gets, you know, he's arrested by the fascists and he has to make a decision how he's going to use that time basically in, you know, in confinement. He says, I could see myself as a victim or I could use this as a kind of spiritual and psychological retreat. And I think to, like for me, thinking about those two ideas together have been extremely helpful as you know, I kind of navigate this time myself and then also offer some uh, I guess some perspective of how to reframe what it is that we're going through as a planet. Yes, exactly. Um, are there any readings that you would recommend for people if they were interested in that, particularly that process of not making things worse and uh, grounding in what they can do and what they can't? Uh, well, I mean, they could always look at the DBT skills. Uh, I think there's a dbt skills workbook hand okay yeah i mean that would probably be a place to look um, okay great and um where can people find you online but they, they can reach all that stuff through my personal website great thanks so much this podcast is brought to you by synthesis center san francisco In collaboration with the Synthesis Center Amherst, Massachusetts, we offer professional development and personal growth through psychosynthesis. For more information about our board-certified coach training program, workshops for personal and professional growth, as well as how to work with one of our psychosynthesis-trained coaches, visit us at synthesiscentersf.com. Awaken your purpose. Create your life.